Good job. If you have your um, Bibles this morning, let's go back to the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5. The last couple of verses of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, end this, this letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Thessalonica. In that little paragraph, often referred to as the benediction, his closing remarks, um, oftentimes could easily be looked over as just a kind of like a closing signature there, not much to do with the letter itself. But I want us to take a look a little more closely at what he says here because I think he says something in closing that's very important to that church and very important to this church and every church, every believer. We've been in a series through 1 Thessalonians entitled Courageous. And today I want to talk very candidly to each of you about what it means to be courageous in this concept called the transformation of the Christian life. To make a courageous change. To make a courageous stance in a very dark, disbelieving culture. And I just want you to know this morning as I begin that I get it. I understand how difficult it is for you to allow the light of Christ to shine in some of the places where you live and work. I get that. I understand that there are people within your family who vehemently disagree with you when you begin to talk about your faith and the truth of God's Word. I understand that your co-workers or your classmates at school don't get it and how difficult it is for you to get caught up in those worldly conversations that are being spoken about as just normative, just a normal part of everyday life, and yet deep down in your heart you disagree, but you feel outnumbered and oftentimes overwhelmed. Understand that as Christians, we oftentimes feel like the underdog outnumbered, maybe even outmanned in the conversations about truth, about life, about values, the meanings of, of life that we, we have in our culture. And when, when we end up in these conversations, we feel pulled. I've been there. I know you're there as well. There's a huge current of influence pulling us away from Thus saith the Lord God in our world today. I get that. And yet, as Christians, we understand that the, the, one of the basic tenets of the Christian faith is the tenet of change. The Christian life is a new life. When Jesus met with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and Nicodemus came to him at night with a simple question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, you must be born again. That's change, isn't it? Something has to start over within you. 
It's got to be different than it was before and different than those around you. The Apostle Paul, when he was talking about his own conversion experience, he says when he became a Christian, old things passed away and behold, all things became new. That's change. That's transformation. In Scripture, we read one of my favorite verses is in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. For there we read, Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. Verse 2, Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Get what he was saying? Don't be conformed, but be transformed. Don't follow all of the normative ways of your culture. Don't go the path of least resistance. Don't feel as though you should agree with everybody around you in this dark world. But rather, be transformed. Be different. Have a different mindset. A different worldview. A different opinion as to what things ought to be. Because your opinions, your mindsets, your, your views are, are coming from a transformed mind. A mind that is conforming to the likeness of Christ. That's what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And, and verse 17 and 18. He says, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord. Stop right there for a second. He says, now we all as Christians are looking in a mirror, but we're not seeing our own broken carnal reflection in this, in this scene. But what are we seeing? We're seeing the reflection of Christ. Our desire should be that when we look at a mirror, when we look earnestly at ourselves, we're not looking for that same old ordinary self, but rather we're looking for the image of Christ in us. He goes on. We are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, that is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, again, it's that whole concept of being changed, of being transformed, of coming out from among them and being separate, declares the Lord. That is the call of God on the Christian life. I want you to know that I understand how difficult that stance is in our world today. And I know that in my lifetime, it has become increasingly more difficult. I have seen our culture shift and our culture change throughout my life, but never more radically than in the last 10, 15, or 20 years. I've seen a cultural change that's moving away, way away from the, the words and the ways of our God. In his book, The Gathering Storm, Dr. Albert Moeller, president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and one of the greatest theological minds of our day, most would agree to that, 
But Dr. Muller's book just came out just a few weeks ago. And I was reading that book, and, I, and he uses a word there that I've seen before, but he really clarifies it. He talks about the de-Christianization of the American culture. The de-Christianization of the American culture. And then he explains it like this. He says, we have been known throughout history as a Christian nation. Most of you have heard that term. But that's not because we were all Christians. Everybody knows that. America has never been a nation of all Christians. But what he says is that there was a time in this country, early on, as our forefathers began to establish it, and, our, and then that we began to see our, our country playing out throughout history, that Christianity was, was a familiar part of our culture, that while the culture was not Christian, it did borrow Christian ideals, Christian values, Christian principles, to the point that it was safe to say it was Christianized. Not Christian, but kind of like Christians. If you ask our grandparents about things like marriage, whether they were Christian or not Christian, most of them would say, well, it's a man and a woman come together before God and get married. That's what our grandparents would say, Christian or not. That's a biblical principle. That's a Christian principle that was a normative part of our culture because we lived in a Christianized culture. You ask our grandparents about male and female. They would say, well, that's pretty easy to answer. You got the men and you got the women. We got two bathrooms for that reason. That was not an issue for them. Why? Because that's a biblical principle and our culture had accepted that as widely normative back in the day when we had a Christianized nation. I could go on and on and talk about other values that we share as Christians that we hold to because of God's word that our culture had just accepted. But Moeller writes that over the last 20 or 25 years particularly, it's something that actually goes back about 50 years and we start seeing it in the 1960s, but particularly over the last 20 or 25 years, not only is our culture becoming more and more de-Christianized, but according to Moeller and others, that process is complete now. He, he argues that the United States of America is completely, as a culture, de-Christianized, that Christian values no longer mean anything to the greater culture in which we live. As a matter of fact, he argues that the, that the, the secular culture is intentionally and, direct, and directly removing itself from Christian values, biblical values, that it now considers to be antiquated, out of date, out of style, behind the times. And he argues that that situation has already been resolved. That America is no longer a Christianized nation, but rather de-Christianized. Now, here, here's the, his next point, and this is what I want to talk about for a few minutes this morning. He says, when, when the United States of America de-Christianized, it separated from the Christian church, as you might imagine, right? That just, that just makes sense. So you've got the Christian church and Christian principles, biblical principles on one side. We used to be really close to each other, and they pulled away and said, we're not going to do that anymore, and the culture pulled away. What did that leave in the middle? It left a gap, didn't it? There's a gap in philosophy, a gap in mindset, a gap in approach to how we live. There was tension there, and, and what Mueller writes is this. Mueller says something had to happen to fill that gap. So what he is arguing is that the, it, was a, it wasn't enough for the culture to de-Christianize. Now the culture is putting pressure on the church to secularize. 
to become more and more secular, to be more and more like them. In, a, in essence, the culture is trying to recruit the church. The, the culture is trying to influence the church to be more and more like the culture. The, it's the cultural gospel that's being pre presented now. And they're saying to us, why don't you people get with the 21st century and catch up to the rest of us? We would love to have you on our team. And unfortunately, we see many of our mainline denominations and Christian churches who have taken the adage, if you can't beat them, you might as well join them. And what we're experiencing now, according to Moeller's and others, is what's referred to as the secularization of the modern church. We're becoming more and more like the world. Now, now, let me be really clear here. I'm not speaking of music styles or dress codes. Is that fair? I'm speaking of worldviews, of philosophies, of ideologies. Things like marriage and family. We look into the word of God and we hear the words of Jesus as he's quoting Genesis chapter 2 when he says and a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh and since that time the Christian community in an attempt to follow Jesus Christ and his truth and his word has seen marriage as a sacred institution between a man and a woman but more recently now, the pressure from our culture under this thing called same-sex marriage and the influence that it has in our culture and the political force that it has behind it has caused so many of our churches and church leaders and even denominations to cave in order to be more socially connected. And the buzzword they often use is relevant. We talk about this thing of gender identity. Oh, you've heard a lot about that in the news lately, haven't you? In Genesis chapter 1, the Bible is clear on this topic when it says, And God created man in his own image, male and female, he created them. First chapter of the Bible. He didn't want it to be arbitrary at all. And yet we are told now by the proponents of this whole gender identity movement that if we hold on to a binary view of gender, that there's male and there's female only, that, that we are outdated, that, that we are biased, that we are even bigoted. And this is what I hate. They'll tell us that we are landing on the wrong side of history. Have you ever heard that? That makes me nauseous. But if that's the case, let me make it very clear as your pastor, I prefer the wrong side of history to the wrong side of theology. What about what we see happening in this whole issue of the sanctity of life? 
oh my goodness, we have to at least take a sobering view as to where our culture is taking this discussion. What started in 1972 with Roe versus Wade has evolved over the last 50 years, or devolved as the case may be. And now we're no longer just having discussions in our culture about partial birth abortion, but it has moved to a discussion of after birth abortion. I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, a civilized society should never have entered into that conversation in the first place. And it hurts my heart. And it keeps coming, and it keeps coming, and it keeps coming, and the influences are everywhere. It's Hollywood and the entertainment industry. We see it day. We see these philosophies and these mindsets day after day after day after day. It's our education system. What started with our higher education system has now filtered down to our preschools. It's in our governments. It's in our places of business. Where we are told that we must conform to this societal pressure to hold these same worldviews. These same ideologies. If we are going to get along in the world in which we live. And it's not just passive um, aggression that we see out there in our culture. It's not just a passive attempt to get us as churches to conform. There is a very active and a very aggressive attempt being made right now by many to get the church to conform to the culture or stop being the church. Stop being supportive as a church. We in America have always stood behind uh, the amendments of the Constitution that give us religious liberty and freedom, this separation of church and state, and yet our government has already begun stepping in and starting to demand that we conform if we are going to play along. In this past spring's presidential debate, one of our candidates was asked straightforwardly, should a church or a religious institution like a college or, or a Christian school, should they lose their exempt status if they fail to adhere to the demands made by the LGBTQ plus community? And the answer came back with a resounding, yes, they should. That's pressure to conform. And sadly enough, there are some churches and Christians and denominations who are bowing to that pressure. We have read where entire denominations have changed their, their policies and their views on some of these topics in a way that goes directly against the expressed and written word of God. Their only argument must be that the word of God is 
no longer applicable in that area. There's a transformation happening in the church today, but I'm afraid it is not people being transformed into the likeness of Christ, but rather the church being transformed into the likeness of the culture. Hurts my heart. So, in this last little section of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul is leaving them with a very pertinent and powerful thought. He's understanding that they are being Christian in a world that is not Christianized and never has been. Fact is, folks, we had it good for almost 200 years in America. The scripture does not promise that we would ever live in a Christianized nation where our views and our values would be accepted and approved. The church at Thessalonica were living in a predominantly Greek area where Christianity was not a part of the overall culture, where cultural norms and cultural views were radically different than what was being taught there at the local church level. And as he's ending this letter, he ends it with this encouraging word. Look at verse 23 and 24. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. That's a great place to start in this whole thing about transformation. We look here at the, the agent of transformation. This is God himself. Paul says God is going to do something in you that no one else can do and you can't even do it on your own. It is the power of God unto salvation that changes us, that changes our hearts, that changes our minds, that changes our outlook. And he's praying, let God do that work in and through you. Oh, I'm going to tell you, that's the gospel. The gospel is what I could not change in myself. The power of God did through Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's the good news. The good news we read in Ephesians chapter 2 that it is God who escorts us from death to life. And in 1 John it said it is God that transfers us from th this world of darkness into his marvelous light. It is God who does the changing in us. We come to him sinners and broken and destitute and depraved, unable to do anything good in and of ourselves. Oh, listen, church, I, I can change a few things about me, to be honest with you. I, I could do good things. I could be nicer, I guess. Patty would like that. Say nice things to people a little more often. You know, I, I, there's a few things that I might could change about myself. But you know, all of those things I mentioned, goodness and niceness and being pleasant, all of those are constructs of the culture. They're all defined by the morality of the culture. What's good in this culture today used to not be good. It used to be horrific. It's good now. Oh, I could do good things, but I could never transform my life. Why? Here's why. Because I sin and fall short of the glory of God, period. There's nothing that I can do in my broken, sinful state. Nothing. To change my life 
of darkness to light. The Bible says that my very best effort, my own righteousness is as of filthy rags before God. I've got nothing to offer a holy and a righteous God. And so Paul starts this last little paragraph of saying, may God himself set you apart. May God himself change your life. May God himself transform you. He is that agent of the transformed life. I would say to you this morning that if you're caught up in this discussion in our culture and you're wavering between one philosophy and another, I challenge you to get back on your knees and on your face before God, the Father of lights, who will give you what you need. It says in 1 Peter that God will give us everything we need for life and godliness. He will reveal to you His truth. And if you will surrender your life to Him, He will transform you into the likeness of His Son. Because He is the agent of that change. The transformed life. God Himself. But let's read on. Because here... He says, may God himself sanctify or set you apart or change you completely. And may your spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless. Your spirit, soul, and body. Why do you think he included all three of those? You see, when we find these three words together in Scripture, both Old and New Testament, these three, not just words, but these three concepts, it, it, it makes a, what we call a construct. Together, they mean something that's a little different than they mean when they're separated out. Let me give you some examples of that. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Jesus came along, and when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? You know this one. He said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, or some interpret it as body. Here, the apostle Paul is writing, and he says, may you be sanctified, may you be changed, may you be transformed in your spirit, soul, and body. So together, those words make a construct that basically means all of you. Everything there is about you. Your psyche, your intellect, your physical body, your spiritual self, all of those things that make you who you are are to be transformed by the power of God. Now, why would he say that in this setting and let me see if I can explain. You see, there was a lot of cultural secularization going on in the first century as well. The first century, particularly those around Thessalonica, were dominated by Greek thought. Now the Greeks in the first century were the cool kids. They were the ones in the know. They were your philosophers and your educators and your, your politicians. They kind of held the purse strings. and they, they were the cool kids in the community. And now there was this mindset among the Greeks of the first century 
that there was a separation between the body, the spirit, and the soul. These were separate entities. And so they could say things like, you know, your soul or your spirit can be united with your creator and your body be partying every night. That was kind of an Epicurean mindset that said, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow your body will die. Then we had the Gnostics that were coming along and saying, your body has nothing to do with your faith or your relationship with God. It is the spirit and the soul that must commune with him. All of a sudden we see this separation and this brokenness, and that's what the cool kids were doing. And so Paul comes along and says, wait, 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 wait. We can't follow that cultural norm, even though so many people believe it, even though it's so widely accepted. We have to understand that God says you are one person and your heart, soul, mind, and body, it all goes together. And he's teaching us that if our soul is transformed by the power of God, our body is going to be as well. And he's telling us the same on the other side. If our body is doing good works, and our body is doing those good things. It's not going to save our soul. We, it's all one piece. And we have to be transformed by the power of God in all of our lives. That's why we must learn to think the right thoughts. We must learn to act the right ways. We must learn to believe the right things. It is all a part of who we are. And that's what God wants to transform. That's the target of this transformed life, our spirit, our soul, our body, everything to be changed for the glory of God. And then he tells us the result. He goes on. That you, your soul, um, spirit, soul, and body may be kept in sound, kept sound and blameless for, why? For the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. There's the result. For the coming. Remember, he's been talking already in this in this this letter about the day of the lord we, we covered that a few weeks ago that day of the lord that for some is going to be a a glorious day and for others is going to be a horrible day he kind of concludes his discussion by saying now may god himself set you apart change you by by his power not just part of you, but all of you, so that you'll be ready for the day of the Lord. So that you'll be ready when they come. Isn't that the gospel? And isn't that the gospel? That God changes us for his glory and prepares us for that day. You see... I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we simply become argumentative with the people in our culture and be out there looking for a good debate about all these issues that I've been talking about. That's not what I'm advocating at all. But I do believe it is our responsibility before God to say the truth in love. To let people know that ultimately every man, woman, boy, and girl is going to have to answer to a holy and a just God, period. And it is only it is only through the blood of Jesus Christ that there can be reconciliation with God. That's it. That's the only way. And it's not just, it's not just some kind of a, a mental ascent where we say, yeah, 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 well, we know Jesus. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the kind of surrender of your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ where God has changed and continues to change your life for his good and his glory. We live in a world that needs to know that. 
You know, one of the things that I've come to in these last couple of couple of months specifically is I've just had a lot of time of soul searching and reflection. I, I'm through being angry because the world believes differently than I do. I'm not angry at them. You know why? My Bible says that those folks are living in darkness. Can we agree that people who live in darkness make bad decisions? They certainly do. The last reason I want to follow any of that is because I don't want to follow somebody who's groping in darkness. They're living in darkness. They don't know the truth. They're working with the information that they have at the time, and the information that they have at the time is grossly insufficient. They've been misled. The Bible teaches that Satan is, is the prince of the power of this air, and he's a great deceiver, and he has been deceiving our world and deceiving our culture for years and years and years and years to believe something that is simply not true. And we have the truth. Jason shared with us a few moments ago a great question asked by an inquisitive disciple named Thomas. Thomas said, Lord, how can be, we be where you are because we don't know the way? Jesus gave a straightforward answer that was beyond debate. He didn't leave any room for question when he answered I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Period. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. God calls us to be transformed so that we will be prepared for that day, but also so that we can be ambassadors for Jesus Christ to share that gospel message so that others can be prepared for that day as well. That's why we stand boldly. That's why we stand courageously on the truth of God's word. That's why we are ready and willing for God to conform us, to transform us into the likeness of his son and our savior, Jesus Christ. That's why we want to look in the mirror and see the glory of Jesus Christ, as it says in 2 Corinthians. That's why we want others to see Christ in us, because it is the light of the world. He is the light of the world. We want that to shine. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, please, as we close out this morning. Thank you so much again for being here and being a part. Jason's going to lead us in a time of invitation and response. I'm going to call you the same, same challenge I gave the early service. This is, a, this is a sermon that calls for a rededication of life. This is a service that says, God, I want to be transformed by your power into what you would have me to be. I want to be one that separates myself from these false teachings and doctrines of the world that stays true to your word no matter what, believing that it will not only prepare me for that day, but it will allow me to be an ambassador for you to help others to know you as well. You make that commitment this morning as we continue.